This is an ABC podcast. Good morning. Welcome to AM. I'm Sabra Lane coming to you from Nipaluna Hobart. A major hive of spies has been disrupted in Australia during the past year, amid warnings the country's facing an unprecedented assault from foreign espionage agencies. Mike Burgess, the head of the domestic spy agency ASIO, gave those details last night in his annual threat assessment. He says journalists and judicial figures are among those being targeted. Defence correspondent Andrew Green was invited to ASIO's headquarters to hear the speech. Please welcome Mike Burgess. Before an audience of military chiefs, diplomats, security officials and academics, the ASIO Director-General delivers his fourth annual threat assessment, the first since last year's federal election. More Australians are being targeted for espionage and foreign interference than at any time in Australia's history. More hostile foreign intelligence services, more spies, more targeting, more harm, more ASIO investigations, more ASIO disruptions. And from where I sit, it feels like hand-to-hand combat. Speaking inside ASIO's Canberra headquarters, Mike Burgess has revealed his agency in the past year disrupted what he describes as a hive of spies. The undeclared operatives of a foreign power had recruited local proxies and agents in an attempt to steal sensitive Australian information. It's obvious to us the spies were highly trained because they used sophisticated tradecraft to disguise their activities. They were good but ASIO was better. With details of the AUKUS submarine program to be revealed within weeks, the ASIO boss has warned defence secrets are being particularly targeted by foreign espionage agencies. Last year, Defence Minister Richard Miles ordered an investigation into reports China had tried to recruit Australian pilots to help train its air force. Mike Burgess confirms ASIO and its international partners have blocked some former ADF personnel from working for authoritarian regimes. These individuals are lackeys, more top tools than top guns. Selling our warfighting skills is no different to selling our secrets, especially when the training and tactics are being transferred to countries that will use them to close capability caps and could use them against us or our allies sometime in the future. The domestic intelligence chief warns journalists and judicial figures are also being targeted by spies, but claims he's been directly pressured by some public servants, academics and business identities to ease up on ASIO's operations. I'm concerned there are senior people in this country who appear to believe that espionage and foreign interference is no big deal. It's something that can be tolerated or somehow ignored or safely managed. The ASIO Director-General ended his annual threat assessment with a boast that some foreign spies are now complaining it's too hard to do business in Australia. Once by whinge to a colleague, I picked the wrong posting. The security service makes this one impossible. Our adversaries might not like us, but they fear us and they definitely respect us. As Director-General of Security, I can certainly live with that. ASIO boss Mike Burgess ending Andrew Green's report. Russia's President Vladimir Putin is suspending his country's participation in a treaty that caps the number of nuclear warheads that Russia and the United States can deploy. President Putin made the announcement in a nearly two-hour-long speech where he also accused the West of being responsible for the conflict in Ukraine and of threatening Russia's existence. Europe correspondent Steve Kinane prepared this report. President Russian Federation. 
Владимир Владимирович Путин. It was his first State of the Union address since April 2021, and it began with President Putin trotting out some of his old justifications for invading Ukraine. He talked of Russia having to liquidate the threat that came from what he called the neo-Nazi regime in Kyiv. He said the West would use anyone, including terrorists, Nazis, even the devil, in order to fight Russia. And he accused NATO nations of trying to turn a local conflict into a global conflict. It was them, not him, he claimed, who were responsible for the deaths in Ukraine. Responsibility for fomenting the Ukrainian conflict, for its escalation and for the increasing number of victims lies entirely with Western elites. And, of course, the current regime in Kyiv, for which the Ukrainian people are essentially strangers. President Putin must have wished that this address could have included some good news from the battlefield. For months, his forces have been trying to take the Donbass without success. There were no new announcements either about mobilising more troops or finally declaring his operation a war. President Putin's main announcement was that he would be suspending his country's participation in the New START nuclear arms treaty, an agreement the US had accused Russia of violating by denying access to weapons inspectors. They can't be stupid people. They want to deliver us a strategic defeat while sneaking into our strategic nuclear objects. Regarding this, I have to say that Russia suspends its participation in the New START treaty. NATO Secretary-General Jens Stoltenberg said the decision made the world a more dangerous place. US Secretary of State Antony Blinken described it as deeply unfortunate and irresponsible. Fresh from a trip to Kyiv, US President Joe Biden gave a speech outside the royal castle in Poland's capital, Warsaw where he had a direct message for the Russian people. The West was not plotting to attack Russia, as Putin said today. And millions of Russian citizens who only want to live in peace with their neighbours are not the enemy. This war is never a necessity. It's a tragedy. President Putin chose this war. Every day the war continues is his choice. While President Putin was giving his address, blaming the West for the war, a Russian shell hit a bus stop in the southern Ukrainian city of Kherson. Six people were killed and another 12 were wounded. As we approach the first anniversary of the invasion of Ukraine, neither side looks likely to back down anytime soon. This is Steve Kinane reporting for AM. For years, remote Indigenous communities and green groups have been pushing for more independent oversight of the Northern Territory's huge MacArthur River lead and zinc mine. The NT government promised to recruit three panels of independent scientists who'd have the power to approve plans to reduce environmental risks from the mine. But as Jane Barden reports, a failure to set up the panels has led to accusations that problems are being ignored. In the NT's remote Gulf of Carpentaria, Savannah country, Garawa elder Jack Green is concerned Glencore's MacArthur River lead and zinc mine could damage sacred sites and waterways. I'm still worried about uh, sites. That's important to all Aboriginal people, that we're all connected through that um, sacred sites. And we're still worried about the water. We reckon that water are going to get more affected sooner or later. 
Glencore says it's now stopped toxic rock in its huge waste rock dump from spontaneously burning by covering it up. And it's reduced the amount of heavy metals contaminating fish in a creek on the mine site. But Jack Green distrusts those reassurances. And he's also worried that a mine pit levee wall could collapse, allowing the MacArthur River to flood in and further spread contamination. Whether they done a diversion, the water still want to go to the same course. You know what I mean? When the NT government allowed a major mine expansion two years ago, it promised to set up an independent scientific panel to probe and sign off on plans to deal with that risk. Two more panels were to approve company plans to prevent pollution from the waste rock dump and the leaking tailings dam. NT Environment Centre Director Kirsty Howie. What these panels were supposed to do was to appoint experts in those fields to advise on how these very, very significant risks should be addressed, mitigated and resolved. And that hasn't happened. She's particularly worried because the NT government has also reduced the scope of its own independent monitor, which has now reported that the mine is complying with government regulations. The independent monitor has completely lost its teeth, so it's nothing but a tick and flick exercise. The NT Mines Minister is Nicole Manison. The public can have confidence in the level of environmental scrutiny that's there. We do have the independent monitor's report. Because the NT government didn't establish the oversight panels, the federal government decided it would require the appointment of one independent expert to help the Environment Minister make decisions on what to allow. The NT Industry Department has told the ABC it still intends to establish two panels on the waste dump and tailings dam to report in 2024 and 2025. So right now, at this very moment, we've got no independent oversight of this mine. It's really grossly inadequate given how catastrophic the risks are. NT Environment Centre Director Kirsty Howie ending Jane Barden's report. The wrestle is intensifying between ecotourism developers and conservationists over national parks, with concerns the public will be shut out of more pristine areas. In Queensland, locals and traditional owners have been fighting over a plan to build accommodation in protected bushland north of Noosa in the state's southeast. Similar battles are raging in other states and territories, as Stephanie Smale reports. Throughout Queensland's Great Sandy National Park, there's dramatic stretches of beach, towering sand dunes, tall forests and freshwater lakes. Bushwalkers can already explore it using an established trail, but there are plans to build accommodation along the route to make the journey more comfortable. Beautiful closed canopy intact coastal woodland Open understory, a few large midgen bushes, it's no weeds, no disturbance, good ground cover. That's conservationist Greg Wood from the group Protect Our Parks. He's describing one of the five sites pegged for private cabins or permanent tents in the protected area. 38 square metre footprint cabin for two people to spend one night. The park is being degraded for that high level experience. Despite growing community concern and a number of proposed sites already having to be moved due to environmental worries, the Queensland Government is pushing ahead with the overall plan. The Department of Environment and Science says it has a list of key ways to protect the area, 
including clearing the smallest amount of vegetation possible, using appropriate waste management and capping visitor numbers. Greg Wood believes it's the wrong approach. What we should be doing is having a community conversation about what kind of things we want to do with a national park, what kind of uses and opportunities in national parks are there for everybody and get a balance. We shouldn't be configuring policy around one corporate lobbyist's idea of what one user group might want. The foremost principle of national parks and why they've been founded in the first place is the conservation of nature. And from what we've seen, I'm really not sure that's the case. Suzanne Cooper from the National Parks Association of Queensland says there's a growing push to build permanent places to stay inside national parks, despite the potential environmental risks. All across Australia, there's farms adjacent to national parks that are building accommodation campgrounds uh, where people stay and it's generating a large amount of dollars into the region. So you're saying people don't need to stay inside the national park, they can stay near it and still have that same exposure? Absolutely and that model works really well and I've experienced it myself a number of times. Even fairly remote areas like the Kangaroo Island Wilderness Trail, which is world quality, you can access a start and finish point to the walk by using the fire trails and you go back and stay again in local accommodation. Suzanne Cooper from the National Parks Association of Queensland ending Stephanie Smale's report. If you're trying to tighten your household spending to deal with the increasing cost of living, private health insurance could be one big ticket item under the microscope. Some people who live outside the big cities feel that what they're getting for their premiums isn't enough to justify the cost. Here's regional health reporter Stephen Schubert. When Greg Owens had a stroke on Boxing Day last year, he went straight to his local hospital at Nowra, two and a half hours south of Sydney. But despite paying $6,500 a year for private health insurance, he was shocked at the service he received. I was in the public ward. I did not receive much of a better deal. He says being treated as a private patient in a public hospital entitled him to a daily newspaper, a TV and free parking. I did receive one newspaper. They never turned the TV on. Greg Owens was also supposed to have access to a specialist of his choice, but no one has been available at his local hospital. I'm eight weeks after the stroke and um, I still have not seen a specialist. When Launceston retiree Cheryl Hamm had a bicycle accident, she fractured a piece of bone that got caught between nerves, leaving her in immense pain. She thought she'd get quick treatment, knowing she'd paid her private health insurance premiums for decades. As the weeks went by, I realised that I was not going to be seen to any quicker than a public health patient. Cheryl Ham eventually found an orthopaedic surgeon back in her old home state of Queensland, which her health cover did partly reimburse her for, but she did have to pay for her own travel. Do you think that if you live outside a big city in Australia that private healthcare is worth the cost? No, definitely not. Greg Owens and Cheryl Hamm contacted the ABC through the Regional Health Project, which is asking people living outside the big cities to share their stories of the medical system. 
When it comes to value, many people in rural and remote Australia may have difficulty in seeing the value in private health insurance. Susie Teagan is the CEO of the National Rural Health Alliance. The main value is access to private services. So a choice of doctor or if they have additional extras, they would like to see a physio or an OT or a dietitian. But if those services are not there, well, then they don't have the ability to choose the doctor or the services. The total number of Australians with private health insurance has risen by 750,000 in the past two and a half years, according to Dr Rachel David, the CEO of Peak Body Private Healthcare Australia. One of the main reasons that they join a health fund is because they really need control over when they go to hospital. Dr David says some policies will help cover the cost of travel for people living in the regions. Stephen Schubert. Thousands more people have been displaced from their homes in southern Turkey and northern Syria after yesterday's powerful earthquake. The latest 6.4 magnitude quake was centred near southern, the southern Turkish city of Antakya and was felt as far away as Lebanon. Rachel Hayter reports. Syrian refugees living in southern Turkey are fleeing again. We're torn to pieces. We're in a really shattered state, both as a family and the whole city of Hatay, because this city is a very historical place, a place that's hosted many civilizations. I mean, we don't really want to leave this city, but sometimes we have to leave to live. In the southern Turkish city of Hatay, this man is carefully retrieving his belongings from a damaged apartment block, surrounded by mountains of grey rubble. His sister is one of more than 47,000 people who've been killed in these recent disasters. We buried our relatives who lost their lives in the quake and now we know they can rest in peace. We can't bring back the dead, but we survived. So we're trying to salvage whatever we can. We have to live. We have no other choice. Across the border in Syria, the disaster is mirrored but with less aid. Yesterday we were sitting at home when the earthquake happened and everybody ran out of the house and stood outside. This quake has ruined our livelihoods. What can we do? We just wanted the kids to be safe. Our house is ruined, but at least our kids are okay. A United Nations delegation is visiting to assess the damage. David Carden is a UN Deputy Regional Humanitarian Coordinator. We came to uh, see what the needs were. There's huge needs uh, in shelter, uh, in health, uh, the need for fresh water, uh, for sanitation and, of course, removal of debris. The World Food Programme is also working in Syria to help millions of people who are hungry. But the most recent quake has frightened many aid workers. Middle East and North Africa Regional Director Corinne Fleischer says some are living in their cars. All of them went back into their cars. They're all so worried that with those quakes, new houses will come down, and of course that's very likely to happen, uh, so that they prefer to stay in the out, uh, in, outside in, you know, in the freezing temperatures rather than you know, taking the risk to be in a building that is, uh, that is at risk. There are now three border crossings between Turkey and Syria, but aid is still desperately needed in the rebel-held northwest. Rachel Hader reporting that's AM for today. Thanks for your company. I'm Sabra Lane.
Hi, I'm Sam Hawley, host of the ABC News Daily podcast. Is the poker machine industry in Australia just as powerful as the American gun lobby? Some anti-gambling advocates say it is. Today, Insider's host David Spears on the latest political efforts to crack down on pokies. Look for the ABC News Daily podcast on the ABC app. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.